House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren, and I'm not Mr. David Martino. You are not. No, and I'm not no. going to be. No. Making fun of me. I got COVID. <laughs> me making fun of you. Seattle give me COVID. <laughs> Can't believe that. You know? So speaking of that, we've got a man on the run. And he's got a new book out called Silent Silhouette. Who killed Deborah Sue? Mr. George Jared. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And the last time I was talking to you, you were on the West Memphis three thing and uh um did any of those people get a hold of you or try to kill you or anything like that, you know? <laughs> Not yet. Um, actually did an interview with uh, Terry Hobbs' stepdad in Ooh. the spring. And what we did is uh, CrimeCon had approached him to see if he would give a talk at CrimeCon in Vegas. And he said he would. And um, they were trying to figure out who was going to interview him. So the CEO of CrimeCon, uh, I know him pretty well. He called me and was asking me questions about it. And I was like, his name is Kevin. I said, Kevin, so what's the deal? Why are you asking those questions? He goes, well, Terry Hobbs is going to come on stage and do an interview. And of course, I started laughing. I said, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and he said, um, he goes, well, we're going to try to get Nancy Grace or Bob Ruff or someone like that to do an interview with him. And I said, well, I can tell you right now, that'll definitely not happen because he hates Nancy Grace because I've interviewed him before. Yeah. And, um, so he called me back a couple of days later and he said, yeah, you're right about both of those. But he did say he would agree to do one interview and is if you would do it. And I was like, really me? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I've interviewed him in the past. So we did the interview. We recorded on Zoom. He said, I'm not going to go to Vegas, but I will do the interview. So we recorded it and then played it on a huge screen at the Paris Hotel during CrimeCon. And I was on stage with Bob Ruff and Jim Clemente, you know, um, yeah. the executive producer of Criminal Minds. You know Jim. He yeah. ran the FBI's behavioral analysis unit. And um, so what happened was is I would I would tell the crowd, you know, like why I was asking a certain question while I was leading him down a certain path. And then Jim would analyze his answers. So um, that was, and then after we did crime con in vegas obviously we had the evident or the touch dna hearing you know damien Nichols is suing the state of arkansas to get them to to compel them to do the dna touch dna testing and so i was there with them for the hearing in june yeah what, what do you think is going to happen there what's your opinion you know i'm a journalist so i tend to be more of a pessimist um <laughs> You know, that's just kind of my nature because um, I yeah. a lot of times I see the worst side of people, not just in crime, but just in everything in general. I hope that when, if, if it goes to the Arkansas Supreme Court, that they will have the sense to understand that it is absolutely ludicrous for a, a person who has been convicted of a crime to not be able to do advanced DNA testing to clear their name in that crime. I think we can all I don't care what side of this case you're on or any case. We should all be always be on the side of more scientific testing in, in criminal cases, I think. And, you know, that you can create a legal argument not to do anything if you want. I've seen I've seen my God, so many happen so many times in courtrooms all over the country. It's not just an Arkansas problem or a South problem. It's an everywhere problem. And my sense is they'll probably come to their senses, if that makes sense. 
So uh, I hope <laughs> we'll see what happens. Not counting on it. I'll tell you the way that case has been haywire since the beginning. So, you know, um, and I, I, like I said, I had to get out of some of those groups because there's just too many nutballs and they get very threatening. And that uh, if they know that you, if you're kind of on the echo side or if you're kind of going well, you follow the movies and, and kind of believe more of the facts, they get really upset, you know? Can't, yeah, they don't cool. like the facts. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't figure that out. I can't figure out why they're so impassioned. Um, they really hate the concept of what Echoes represents, I guess, you know, wearing black. Yeah, and, and, you know. and it's weird because, like, even with my – I did the interview with Terry, and I asked him straight up. Yeah, I said, what do you think about this DNA testing? Do you want it? And he said he'd have no problem if a judge came in and ordered the evidence destroyed. And I was like – how does that not resonate, you know, with people, you know, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's kind of the terms of how our society has gone, you know, in a while. Do you like CrimeCon this year? It was good. It was a good event. And you like the turnout? Did it get back to normal? Yeah, it was insane um, because I, I spoke at CrimeCon last year on the Rebecca Gould case in Austin. Um, we had our unique dynamic there this year. We were in the, the Paris Hotel at the Bellagio directly across the street was the NFL draft going on the same day that we gave our presentation. And so it was absolute insanity. I asked one of the, the hotel, one of the people at the front desk, I was like, I've been to Vegas before. This just seems way busier, way more packed. And she was like, Oh yeah. She said, we have about 200,000 more people than we normally have in Vegas on a weekend. Yeah. So, and you know, they're always having conventions and stuff. So it was insane. I know um, I had friends that were just randomly in Vegas who found out I was speaking at CrimeCon and wanted to come, and they tried to get tickets and couldn't. And Sunday morning, at, toward the end of the event, I, I ran into Kevin Balf, the CEO, um, that morning, and I said, "I said, man, I said, did you guys were you guys turning people away?" He goes, "Yeah, a lot. Like they had completely sold out." So. Um, it was free for all places were packed. People were having a good time and we, I guess we all survived. So I guess we're good. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of interesting too, because John Ramsey, John Benet Ramsey's dad came and gave a presentation and, you know, John had um, sued Jim Clemente and CBS for, I think like $900 million over yeah. that, you know, that series they did a few years ago when they recreated the whole house. And so him and Jim are not buddies, but they were both there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I've gotten to be friends with Jim. And so him and I were talking about it. And he was not very happy about that part. But, uh, yeah, no. I don't think there was any major confrontation between them. No. Well, no, everyone's going to be a little bit. That, that's an amazing case, too. So what got you into this um, this case with uh, who killed Deborah Sue, the silent silhouette? So what 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 led you to this? So um, I'll, I'll start from the beginning on this one. So my, and I call her my investigative partner, uh, Jennifer Buchholz. She's a criminology professor at American Military University, and she was a counterintelligence, a counterintelligence agent in the U.S. Army for years. She worked at the Pentagon. And so her and I have worked on a couple of cases. We, we just became friends over the Rebecca Gould murder case. She heard me on a podcast. And so she contacted me immediately when I read her email. I was like, this is a very smart, serious human being. And so her and I started working on that case because I had written about it as a journalist for, at that point, about 15 years. And so I had included a chapter about that case in several books I had written 
because I was trying to continue to, you know, to try to put pressure on the police to solve the case because I felt like it was solvable. And so she agreed. She wanted to use as a case study in her classroom. She lives in Colorado Springs. Um, she came to the Mississippi Delta to, to visit me where I live. Her and her husband came. We went, we, we went to where the girl was murdered. We, we did all of the, um, you know, like she did all of her, I don't know even what you call it, like her geographic study, you know, like, you know, killers, you know, how, like how far they'll take a body, the route that this person had to take. So it's kind of a rural gravel road that we think he took to dump her body. And so we decided to form a Facebook page. And when we did, a guy named William Miller joined. And to make a long story short, um, he was the first cousin of her sort of ex-boyfriend. And he was communicating with us. He was giving us theories on the case. He would comment on other people's posts. And pretty quickly, we, deter- we decided or determined that this guy, there was something not right with him. That He knew too much about this case. And so we, started, we, were, we forwarded that information to the lead detective. And we also found, we also learned that the weekend before this girl was murdered, she was murdered at her sort of ex-boyfriend's house, a guy named Casey McCullough. And what we found was that he, this William Miller, had visited that house within 12 hours of her getting murdered. And so that, he he had come to town. He didn't live in in Arkansas at the time. He lived in a, a small town in Texas. And he had come up to help his mom and brother move. Well, the day of the murder, on or about September 20th, 2004, they had gone to the school to get this just all of a sudden out of the blue when they went and got this younger brother out of school and they all fled to Texas before this girl was even reported missing. And so it was interesting to us that he was in proximity to the victim. And then about probably six weeks before he came, he was living in the Philippines on a plantation. Six weeks before he came back to the United States to visit his mom and brother who were now living in Oregon, he stopped communicating on our page altogether. And so the lead detective in the case decided he wanted to question him because he thought he might know something. Well, he flew to Oregon. He interviewed this guy on November 7th, 2020, and he broke down and confessed to the murder. He didn't give a motive. He said that he killed this girl. She, he said she was alone inside um, the sort of ex-boyfriend's house. She had actually taken him to work that morning and had come back to the house to collect her things so that she could make a return trip to her hometown of Fayetteville, Arkansas, where she was going to college. And he said that he just came in, knocked on the door, said he was having car trouble, that he was Casey's cousin, could he use the phone. And then for whatever reason, he was pacing around. The psychotic urge to kill her overcame him. A piano leg, which was known to be loose on the a piano inside in the living room, fell to the floor. He picked it up. He went in the bedroom where she was at. He hit her twice in the head. And then after that, he, the piano leg shattered, he said. Then he went to the closet, took a necktie, wrapped it around her neck, and he strangled her. And um, so a lot of things he said were true. Um, he's been arrested. His trial actually starts on Halloween Day here. Well, CrimeCon wanted us to come and speak about interacting with this guy on our page. They thought it was interesting, and Oxygen Channel actually did a feature story about it. And so we gave a presentation. Well, when we got done, uh, my investigative partner, Jennifer, was like, well, you know, this works pretty well on this case. Maybe we need to try it on another case. And I said, okay, what are you thinking? Well, we had a friend approach us about Deborah Sue Williamson's case. Deborah Sue was a newlywed. She'd been married for about 10 weeks, living in Lubbock, Texas. She was stabbed to death on her carport on August 24th, 1975. 
She was stabbed 17 times. And the case, they never named a suspect in the case. And so it it was kind of intriguing. Now, I told Jennifer, I said, okay, I don't want to waste my time because this is a really old case. And, you know, I hate, and, you know, Alan, you know this. There are some cases that can't, no matter how hard you try, there's nothing, anybody from the out, there's nothing that can be done. They can't be solved. There's some bridges that are just too far to cross. And so um, we met with some family members and we, they had, if one reason that we decided to take this case was because in the mid 1980s, you remember Henry Lee Lucas was running around confessing to all these murders. Well, Deborah (laughs) Stu, well, yeah. Well, Deborah's was one of the ones that he confessed to. Her family was the first ones that said, no, you did not kill our daughter. And they spent a lot of money and time proving that he didn't. And that all played out in the the Netflix series, The Confession Killer. And the DA at the time in Lubbock was so mad at their efforts. At one point, he was sitting across at a desk from the Deborah Sue's stepdad, Bob Lemons. And he pushed the entire case file over to Bob and said, you know what? If you think you're so smart, you solve it. So guess what? We had all of the contemporaneous reports and everything that the police had from 1975. And so um, the family had kept all that stuff. So that was one thing. Number two, when we looked kind of preliminarily about like people that were interviewed as people of interest or possible suspects, a couple of things really popped out. Like we were like, you know, this is looking like it's very solvable. And so that was the second part. And then the third part was family buy-in, which, again, Alan, you know this, that sometimes can be a crapshoot, too, because you always have, you know, rogue family members who, you know, involved, not involved. They get mad. I mean, it's if, you know, if you're talking to one sister more than another sister, you know, it just you know how that dynamic plays out. And I've talked to a lot of people who work in this space. And it's incredible to me how many people have encountered these problems. Yeah, it's terrible. It's it's not a, it's not it's not a good one to work on. You can't you can't really rely on it, you know. Yeah. So she, I, this case had met all those criteria, and so this was in late June of 2021. Um, the anniversary of her death was coming up, so we kind of formed a game plan. We we put together a spreadsheet of everybody we wanted to talk to, and you know the first person we wanted to track down was um, her widower. You know, a guy named Doug Williamson, he actually found her body that night. And so what the story was, it was a Sunday night and her husband, Doug, worked at a local pizza and he was the manager of the pizza. Inn. And so she and her her mom and dad and little sister went to the pizza inn to eat dinner that night around seven, seven thirty ish. They eat dinner. They take Debbie back to the house around eight fifteen. And they drop her off. She was supposed to return to the pizza inn that night because Doug had borrowed $140 from the teal to buy a CB radio, which was totally fine. It was something that employees could do. They could borrow money from the teal. They just had to make sure it was paid back, that the register was reconciled by the end of business on Sunday night at the end of the week. So he had to return the money, which he had. And so she was supposed to help return to put the money in the teal and help him do inventory. And so he's working, you know, eight o'clock, you know, turns into nine o'clock. He calls her around nine and was like, hey, you know, we're really busy. Maybe could you come in and help? And she's like, I'll come and help as soon as I'm done watching my show. 
And yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm watching Crime Con. <laughs> right. Actually I actually I know what movie she was watching. Um she was watching The Odd Couple uh, starring um Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon. Oh. Um, Holy. Yeah. So something happened because she was supposed to leave around, we believe around 9.15 to go back to the Pizza Inn. Something happened out in the carport of her house. And Doug kept calling, calling. He called her parents. He called friends, family. No one, he, he just thought maybe she went with her mom and dad, you know, because that's the last time he saw her. And um, they said, no, she's not with us. And so he was starting to get a little worried. But again, it's 1975, you know. I mean, it's not like people... Couldn't be out of pocket for a while. There were no cell phones. We weren't as connective as we are now. Right. So, um, the, it by the it got concerning around midnight. He started getting really, really worried. And finally, at one o'clock, he told the only other person who was working there, a woman named Marianne, a waitress. He said, "I got to go home and check on Debbie real quick. I'll be right back." And there was all, I'll mention this. There was another friend of his who had come in to help him do inventory. A guy named Lex. He didn't work at the Pizza Inn, but it was kind of one of those arrangements where Lex would come and help Doug, and then Doug would give him, a, like, a free pizza or something. So um, the two of them are there. He goes back to his house. He notices the back door is open the, uh, and near the porch, and it's pitch black. And as he's walking up to the house, he stumbles upon her body. Um, she'd been stabbed, like I said, 17 times. Her pants had been pulled down. Her shirt had been pulled up to make it look like she'd been sexually assaulted. Later during her autopsy, it was determined that she wasn't. Her purse was missing with $140 in it, along with like a, a little picture book. Like she had a, it's, it's like a picture proof book of her wedding photos. I guess it was a thing back then where, you know, like somebody would get married and then they would have this proof book and then they'd go to people and say, hey, do you want this picture? Do you want that picture? And then they would order it. And so it's not the traditional wedding album. And some in the media, it got uh, conflated into this thing where it was like the killer stole this, you know, this wedding album. And it must be because it was obsessed with her, you know, or all that other stuff. Yeah. We think it was probably just in her purse when the person took her purse. And we think it's it's possible the person um, it's possible the one hundred forty dollars was a motive. But only two people actually or maybe three knew that she had one hundred forty dollars in there. So we think that maybe it was more of the staging because the killer also did something kind of profoundly stupid. The killer took a garden hoe and knocked out this little tiny window that was over the kitchen sink, which was right next to the porch. But the back door was wide open. Hmm. What was the person trying to do, you know, trying to make it look like they were trying to stage a, you know, like a burglary. And but when the back door is wide open, I mean, and, and here's the thing. If she was in the house when this happened. Is she going to run towards that door or out the front door, which leads out to the main highway? She's probably going to run out the front door towards the main highway, not towards somebody trying to break in. So that didn't make any sense. So our first step is we wanted to track down Doug. We got a cell phone number for Doug. I called him up. I said, Hey, Doug, this is George Jarrett. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. Just we want to, we want to do it. We want to study your, your ex or, you know, your former wife's case. And we started talking. He was a really friendly guy. And um, I, I noticed his phone number was a Missouri number. And I said, Doug, do you live in Missouri? And he goes, yeah, I live in a little town called Donovan. I get you've never heard of it. And I said, 
Doug, I said, I'm about an hour from you right now. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. So about a week later, I took my podcast producer and we just drove up to his house. And that's where we did the real formal interview. He didn't remember a lot. Um, he was very grief stricken after the murder. Um, he was obviously the top suspect at first, you know, and he was very forthright with us. He was like, yeah, they, they definitely suspected me. I came in, did thir- they questioned me a bunch. I did polygraph tests. And I said, did you pass him? He goes, yeah. And I said, did you fail any part of it? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I failed one question. And it was a question when they asked me if I did it. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, well, um, yeah. Well, but the thing of it is, like Jennifer and I, she was on the phone. Of course, she's in Colorado Springs, so she couldn't make the trip over to Donovan. But immediately, just the fact that he was so truthful about it, you know, immediately. And he was right. I mean, yeah. there are many parts to a polygraph and they all they're kind of like, you know, locking parts. So we knew he was being truthful with us. He had actually moved um, to a town called Jonesboro, Arkansas, a few months after the murder and uh, got a, a teaching degree and was a teacher in that area for about 30 years. And he was on the bowling team. And ironically enough, he was on the bowling team with a guy named Bob Trout. Bob Trout's family owned a newspaper that I worked for for eight years. Uh, so conspiracy going on here. It's weird. <laughs> and it gets, Hey, I'll tell you what, it, Alan, it gets even more. It, the coincidences in the case for me personally, actually accelerate as this process goes on. Well, so we decided, yeah, I get. Yeah. Even though I, it was two years before I was born. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a conspiracy. I know it. We'll make it. We'll make yeah. it work. Well, here. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll add to it right now. You know what? Guess what town I was born in? Oh, no. <laughs> Lubbock, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when we picked this case, I didn't tell Jennifer that, like, I didn't grow up there, but I was born there and I have family there. And um, so in August of, of 2021, we decided to take a trip. She came down from Colorado. I came up from the Delta and we um, we went to Lubbock because a lot of the people we were going to be looking for were in and around the Lubbock area. And, and also, we decided to plan our trip on the anniversary of the murder. And our, our plan was we were going to go to the house the night of the murder, and we were going to film and record. And hopefully, if that whoever owned the house at this point, if they would let us in to take measurements and do things just so we could get a better feel. Because I don't think I can emphasize enough that going to a crime scene is actually important, even for skilled people who are, who are skilled at reading autopsy reports and people who are skilled at all of these different things. Actually going to the scene, it just gives you a fl- more of a flavor for what actually happened. And that's exactly what happened when we went there. So we went there. Um, we tracked down, you know, we just went right down the list. Um, well, let me back up. One person who contacted me early on because we started another Facebook page. And again, that was kind of our goal was that if we could lure you know, we lured a killer in Rebecca Gould's case onto a social media platform. Our goal was maybe we could do this again and maybe funnel the, you know, have it do the same thing that we did in her case. So one person who contacted us right after we started our page was Marianne, who was the waitress who worked that night um, at the Pizza Inn. It was only her and Doug. And so she contacted me and she goes, I want you to know that Doug did not leave that night. And I said, okay. I said, well, let's talk about it. I said, so tell me the dynamic. She said, well, he was cooking and running the register. I was waiting tables. We were super busy that night. I couldn't have run the place all by myself. 
And, and she didn't know this, but we had some – in the police reports, we actually had some – we had some information that actually confirmed what she was saying because Doug was required to do a nightly deposit drop, and the deposit drop didn't get done because they were so busy. The deposit was actually in the register the next morning when they found it. So um, – and she said – and I asked her the question. I said, listen, you know, the first thing people are going to ask is, are you covering for him? Were you having some type of an affair with him? Were you, you know, connected to him in some other way? And she said, no, he had only been the manager there for about a month. Nothing like that ever happened. His wife came in frequently. Um, she said they got along very well. She would help us if we needed help. He, he, she said that, that Debbie was a friendly, sweet woman. She goes, um, she was just a nice person. I don't know else to, how else to say it. Yeah. And I said, okay. So that, that seemed to check every box. So, we, you can't ever eliminate anybody in a cold case like this, but we kind of put Doug, you know, you know, down a lower rung. And I explained to Doug, I, I said, Doug, listen, we're going to start this Facebook page and people are going to accuse you of it. And they're going to say horrible and terrible things. And you're just going to have to get ready. And sure enough, people would come out and say, I mean, you know, <laughs> they, lived up, they lived up to the reputation humans. <laughs> yeah. They never disappoint, Alan. That's the weird thing. <laughs> no, no. They lived up to it all the way. Yeah. So what we did is we started tracking down people. Now, someone who popped out as a person that we were very interested in talking to was a guy named Paul. And the reason that he was interesting is that he had dated, sort of dated Debbie before um, she got with Doug. Now, Paul was friends with Doug for years before Debbie even came into the picture. So they were longtime friends. In fact, Paul had stayed the night with Doug at his, his childhood home. They were that kind of friends. You know what I mean? And they worked together. And it was ironic because the house that Doug and Debbie were living in was actually his childhood home. When they got married in June of that year, his parents gave them the house because they were living in another house. So he was living in the house that he had spent his whole life growing up in. And Paul had stayed the night at that house. Well, he started dating Debbie. And then, and when I say dating, they didn't date in the sense that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. It was more like they would go to the movies together. You know, they might go watch, or watch a movie, maybe at each other's house or hang out. He wanted to really date her, but she didn't really want to date him. She wanted him more to be a friend. And then Doug came around and she definitely wanted to date Doug. So she dumped Paul to go out with Doug. And then Doug and her get married about nine months later. And he wasn't even invited to the wedding because it was so kind of contentious, I guess. Mm, yeah. And he actually left town. Well, there was an interesting thing that we found in the police reports. Paul returned to Lubbock a couple of weeks before the murder. He had been out, he went out of town to work all summer. When he got back into town, he asked Doug if he could come and work for him at the Pizza Inn, and Doug hired him as a cook. The night of the murder, Paul was working as a cook. He asked, around 8 o'clock, he asked Doug if he could get off early because he wanted to go on a date with a woman named Tina. And, and Doug's like, yeah, that's great. And the reason that reason being is that Doug's bonuses were tied to his labor cost percentage. So if he could bring that labor cost percentage down, his bonuses would go up. So it made sense for him um, to let him go early. And Sunday wasn't a busy night. This was unusual that, that they were as busy as they ended up being. So Paul is supposed to leave around. He told the police he left at 910. 
And right around the time that he left, he asked Doug an interesting question. He said, your guys' house is closer to Tina's house. Can I stop by there and take a shower? <laughs> and so Doug calls Debbie and is like, hey, uh, Paul wants to come by and take a shower. Um, and we don't even know. And Doug honestly said he couldn't remember what she said to this or anything like that. So all we know is that she thought he was coming over to take a shower in the vicinity of the time she's murdered. We don't know if he went or not because allegedly he told Paul or he told Doug, he said, well, if she's there by herself, I don't want to go by there and take a shower. So obviously we wanted to talk to him. Yeah. Well, he, he wouldn't talk to us. Um, well, it, actually he did. Jennifer called him and he did talk to us. Now he denied that they ever dated or anything like that. Um, he said he didn't remember. Of course, we always do things like we'll ask people their theory about of the case. What do you think happened? And he didn't really have a theory. He thought maybe it was her brother because the police had honed in on her brother for a while as a potential suspect in the case. And so um, and then he pointed to Henry Lee Lucas. But of course, we knew that was all insanity. But when, when she asked him about the shower thing, he denied it. He's like, I don't remember ever asking to be in the shower. And so the conversation was only about 30 minutes long. I, later on, I, he called me and talked to me for over an hour. And in that conversation, he told me that he did take a shower in that house. Because, see, Alan, I had a theory. I had a theory that the killer killed her because no one in all of Lubbock, Texas, that night showed up with any type of blood on them or anything else. So my theory was the person who killed her went inside the house, cleaned themselves up and then left. And so he, I talked to him later a couple of months after we were in Lubbock and he told me that he did take a shower at that house the day before when they had all gone to the lake together with a group of friends, which I knew wasn't true because they did go to the lake as a group of friends. That was in the police reports, but they had taken a shower at Debbie's parents. They had a cabin on that lake and they had all gone there cleaned up and then Doug and Paul actually went to work at the pizza inn. So we, we had to figure out, you know, why this guy's story was this inconsistent because just to tell you, most of the people we talked to in this case, their statements now were eerily similar to what they were in 1975. And I'll give you an example. So one of the neighbors is now a 93 year old woman. Now she's not a neighbor. She doesn't live in that neighborhood anymore. She told when we got a hold of her, she said, I can't tell you anything about that night. I really don't remember anything. She said, the only thing I remember is around the time when the when the cops came and asked me about the time frame of this murder, if I heard anything. She said, I thought I heard some sounds that sounded like somebody was getting into a wreck out near the main highway. She told us that we have original contemporaneous police report from August 26, 1975. It's three lines. And she says, I thought I heard something that sounded like a car wreck. So the memories that these people had were and Marianne, the waitress, her and they, they had no way of seeing their statements, by the way. There's no way they could have read them or there's no access to them. Marianne's statements to me were almost spot on with what she told the police back in 1975. And so um, so we go to Lubbock. We we go to the house the night of the uh, on the anniversary of the murder. Um, there was a, a gentleman who lived there, and um, we didn't 
tell him that we were outside, like we were out on the street, we were in the alley, you know, trying to figure out, you know, did the, the, the killer park his car in the alley and hop the fence? One thing that stood out to us immediately, and we had a group of people with us, was how dark it was, even though there's now a five-lane highway in front of it, and it's surrounded by businesses and buildings and streetlights and other houses. It was unbelievably dark. Like, you couldn't see at all back there today. So we were thinking, my gosh, what would it be like back in 1975? I mean, it would just be as dark as a black hole. And so eventually we knock on the door. We talk to the homeowner. He tells us at one point he did have a rifle pointed at us because he didn't know what these you know crazy <laughs> groups were doing. Outside. City folk. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, – I left him a nice gift basket the next day on his fence <laughs> next to where his puppy was playing in his backyard. Um, and it's funny, we actually went back in March of this year with, with a life-size dummy that was to the dimensions of Debbie to try to figure out exactly how she was stabbed. And he led us right into his property. And that was a wild one because we, I had a girl that had flown from Orlando, Florida. She just wanted to come and help us. And she flew on her own time and dime, met us there and stayed for three or four days. And I was grabbing her and throwing her up against the house. And we had, we had gotten a hold of a, a knife expert, a real good knife expert. And he had told us he knew exactly what type of knife was used to kill her because we gave him some blown up pictures of the autopsy photos. And he said, this is a military style dagger that was produced from 1943 to 1946. And he explained all the dynamics of these wounds, how they looked and why this knife was the most likely um, culprit. And what was weird is several of the suspects in the case or persons of interest all had dads who served in the U.S. military during World War II. And that's what the knife was. This That's what this type of knife was made for. Our knife expert had no clue about any of that. He only got the pictures because we wanted him to just tell us what he thought. He said, I'm telling you, this is a military style dagger from 1943 to 1946. And he said they were commonly issued to people who who, who stormed Normandy who came across the English Channel. And two of the three persons of interest had dads who served at Normandy. And so just the fact that he was able to put that together, we thought was incredible. Well, I'm at this house with this dad. We have a replica of this. It's broad daylight when we're doing this test. And people are driving by. And they see me with this very, I mean, this is a knife. I mean, this isn't a Rambo knife, but it's really close. And I'll never forget this one dude was just walking his dog, just walking by with his headphones in. And he turns and looks and he's like, what are you doing? And I looked at him, I said, mind your own business. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Scare him. Poor guy. Yeah. So anyway, um, but we did these experiments. Um, it, it helped us because like one of the things we couldn't figure out is that most of the wounds on our body, nearly all, if, one wound in and of itself, if you took each one individually, would not have been fatal. It would have damaged her. It would have hurt her. Like she had some stab wounds to, you know, to her lung that pierced her lungs to a degree. She had some in her back. But none of them were just like, you know, like in the throat, through the heart, like directly through the heart, it, you know, in the head, getting somehow getting into your brain. It was, it was nothing like that. So we were trying to figure out, and they weren't jagged. What, meaning that she doesn't, she wasn't moving around much. And so when we went there with the dummy, especially, we were like, there was one wound that she had in her armpit. And we couldn't figure that wound out. We we're like, man, that's such a weird place for a, a, you know, a stab wound up in the armpit. Like she had to have her arm up like this and he'd have to come in like that. 
And then all of a sudden it just hit us because you, you we could, another thing was like, did the killer confront her in the house? Did she run out of the house? Did he, you know, catch her in, in the carport? Um, did he ambush her? Did she come out? Was she shutting her door and he ambushes her in the dark or was there a confrontation coming out the door? And our, we had been under the assumption that it was probably an ambush that somebody just lay in wait for her, um, in the flower garden right next to the door. And we haven't ruled any of the, any of these scenarios out. But one thing when we were using the dummy, we, we, it just, it just hit us like a bolt of lightning. If she was being confronted by someone she didn't want to talk to or didn't want to have anything to do with, she would throw, she would probably throw her left hand up like this to say, you know, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. Get away from me. And if he had that knife hidden along his forearm, which our knife experts showed us how easily that is to do, and it is shockingly easy to hide a knife. I had no clue hmm. how if her arm is out like this, if that person comes around, their right hand dominant, and they come around like this. If they were around the same height as her, they would hit her in that armpit area. And it doesn't say it in the autopsy report, but uh, Jennifer worked for the medical examiner's office in New York City for several years. And she said it could have pierced one of the valves in her heart. Like it could have going through the armpit like that. And so we started studying that because here's the thing. We know the attack started by the back porch. She got about 25 feet away. There was a large pool of blood in this spot, and the killer dragged her back to the porch. So she ran for about 20, 25 feet. Well, we started doing some research into that. And if one of your heart valves is pierced like that, you could run for about 20 to 25 feet before you're you're just going to start to pass out. Like, And so it matched the crime scene perfectly. So then at that point, we knew a couple things. We knew that her killer um, – well, you know, it was a theory. I'll say that. Not no, but our theory was that the killer was roughly her height or somewhere in proximity. And the first wound came there. And that explained why all the other wounds were not jagged because she was already unconscious when they were delivered. When you go through this and you're kind of doing this, how much of you are letting your feelings get involved in this? Like, because you meet some of these people and you kind of have feelings about them and stuff like that. How hard is it to keep that out of it? Um, it's very hard. Um you know, because, well, I don't know. I say that it, it, it's when I'm dealing with someone who's truly just like a witness, someone who just, you know, has just information. They just happen to be, you know, there that night, something like that, that, that never have a problem with that. I, I'm a pretty, I have a pretty aggressive personality. So like it doesn't, I, I have no problem, you know, like going up and confronting somebody and saying, okay, you lied about this. Why'd you lie about it? You know? I um, I've written stories year in years past, you know, had a state senator who was the pro tem of the state Senate. I found I uncovered that he had stolen two hundred thousand dollars from his own campaign and I had no problem. And I knew the guy and I had no problem um, writing about it. He eventually ended up in federal prison. So that part doesn't bother me. I mean, I've talked to a lot of murderers, you know, yeah. and so it's just a part of the job. If you're going to do this type of work you, that you better strap up and get ready. Um you know, like even, you know, you know, talking to Paul, you know, it, it was like same as Terry Hobbs. You know, first question is, did you kill him? You know, and did you do it? And I don't let him just say yes or no. I mean, we get into it and I'll tell him, I'll say, well, this is what people think. So tell me why they're wrong. And so um, but it, it's tough. I, 
it's funny. I, it, as I get older, it seems like it's getting a whole lot easier because it seems like I just care less and less what the, <laughs> anybody thinks, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I was wondering, did, did uh, Paul or any other suspects have, you know, a dad who served in Normandy along with being the same height as she was? Yes, he fits both. And there's another guy, too. You guys remember I told you a guy named Lex that was at the Pizza Inn that night. He was best friends with Paul, and he was also friends with Doug. He'd come to help him do the inventory, but he didn't work there. He, um, we've tried to get a hold of him. And what happened that night was Doug went to the house, found his wife in this manner. He drove back to the Pizza Inn. The Pizza Inn was only a couple minutes away, and he just freaked out. Went back to the Pizza Inn. Ran in the door. Paul was there at this point, by the way, because Paul was supposed to come back and help with inventory that night as well. And so he tells Marianne, Lex and Paul she's been raped. And I even told Doug, I said, you know, in the reports, it says you said she was raped. I said, you knew she was dead, though, didn't you? And he goes, oh, he said, I knew. He said, I just he says one of those things. I just could not believe that she was dead. And I said, that's actually a very normal reaction. Um, you know, like when a when a parent has a child that's been kidnapped, if you hear the 911 call, they don't ever say, um, hey, you know, my 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 child's been kidnapped. They say my child is missing. I can't find my child. They never say kidnapped because that has a connotation of the child never coming back. Yeah. And so right. you just don't go there. Well, Lex and Paul left, went to the scene while Doug was on the phone and they actually, actually checked her for a pulse. And so um, we tried to get a hold of Lex. We called him. We had a relative of Debbie's call him. He would not respond to that. In fact, Paul wouldn't respond to any calls from Debbie's half-sister. And she's tried to call him for years, and he would not respond. Like, he would never call her back, which, again, was really odd to us. Why is this person not calling back? I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, because technically they're just, they were just friends and kind of dated. They knew each other for years. And um, so anyway – Finally, we did get some correspondence from somebody who we know that the, the phone number who was texting us back belongs to is on Lex's phone plan. We can't say who was texting us. So right. we don't in the book, but we just refer to them as the texter. And at one point, the texter says, after just bashing us for even trying to get a hold of him, says, well, if the police didn't do their job back in 1975, that's not his fault. Wow. And I was like. Well, that's kind of weird. It's just a weird thing. Yeah. And then there was another odd thing that we, we still haven't been able to figure out. We've got some theories on it. So remember I told you guys that Paul left work at 910. That's what he told the police in the report. Well, we don't know how the police missed this, but in their case file, they had a they took a copy of his clock, like the, his time card. So we looked at his time card and it was military time stamps. And on the time card, it says that he clocked out at 843. Well, that's a 27 minute difference, which is a huge difference in a murder case. Yeah. And so and what made it interesting to us even more was that he did go on this date with this woman named Tina and we tracked her down. And she was lived in the middle. And guys, I'm telling you, when I say the middle of nowhere, Texas, I'm talking the middle of nowhere, Texas. <laughs> I drove my Mustang down a trail for eight, probably eight miles. And I was and um, 
and Jennifer was with me and I kept looking at her going, are you sure we're going the right way? I mean, there's, there's cows out here. There's like tumbleweed. There's oil jacks bobbing up and down. There's one eyed suit. I mean, I was just waiting for John Wayne to come flying off of one of these hills that was around us. And, um, so finally we get to this woman's house and her husband was outside playing with the dog and we get out of my car and he's looking at my car going, I knew what he was thinking. He was like, how'd you get that down here? And, um, he, uh, he goes, can I help you? And we said, well, we want to talk to Tina. And he goes, well, she's in there making lunch. So we open the door and she looks at us and she goes, you want to talk about Deborah Sue Williamson, don't you? And we said, yes, we do. And she goes, you want to know how Paul Neal acted that night? And I said, yes, we do. And she said that he arrived for the day at around 10 o'clock. She said he was covered in water, that he had just taken a shower, like his hair was completely wet. He didn't smell like pizza at all. She said he had really taken a thorough shower and she told us that he acted nervous the whole night. Hmm. And so, you know, you can't, the thing about it was the time card issue was the thing that really stood out to me. And here's another interesting fact about that. Remember I told you Lex didn't work there, right? Right. Well, Lex is interviewed by the police the next day because he was friends with Debbie too. He had known her since high school. In fact, they had gone to prom together just as friends. They didn't date, but they had gone to prom one year together as friends. So he had known her for a long time. He had known her for years. May have known her longer than Paul. When they interviewed him, they the police, for some reason, asked him, they said, when did Paul leave work? And he said, around 8.45. Lex said that he didn't get to the Pizza Inn until around 10.30 or 11 that night to help with the inventory. So how is it that Lex knew exactly when Paul clocked out one day after the murder, when he doesn't work there and he wasn't there when he left, but he knew. And so the only two options at that point in our minds were he either looked at his time card for some reason, which wouldn't make it. I mean, who goes and looks at other people's time cards and, you know, so that didn't make sense. Or maybe Paul just told him in the, like as they're out there at the scene, Maybe they're just having a conversation, and he says, "Well, I left at eight forty-five. We don't know. I mean, yeah. but how did he know?" Well, I think the whole thing is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you I know. Do. Well, you know. Come on. I mean, how many? None of it makes sense. You know. It, it, I think the problem is when you got someone um, saying, "You know, I'm you're going to go to someone else's place to have a shower before you go see another girl," and you know what's really going on here. So there's a lot of dynamics going on amongst the group it's like incestuous and they all have their own ideas and and their own thing going on so it's really tough to decipher what really happened between these people like who was really sleeping with who and who did what to who and who i think there's more to it and there's a lot of secrets um it's possible was there there banjo music playing when you went out (laughs) I didn't hear any, but that doesn't mean it wasn't playing. Okay. <laughs> Just checking to see. I want to make sure you're okay, you know. Yeah, I, 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 well, I, I came out of this unscathed, and I'll say that. Well, on that front, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you got to check, you know. you got to be safe. Um, and so at the end of the day, what, what do you hope people get um, from the book? You know, um, 
we we met with the Lubbock PD. We met with the head of the CID division several times, and we've been funneling him information. And our, on our last trip to Lubbock, we gave him a jump drive with everything on it. Now, our intention was not to write a book about the case. We didn't go into it with that. We generally just wanted to study a case to see if we could figure it out, a very cold case. And so I, the reason we wrote the book is because CrimeCon had – approached us about giving a presentation on Debbie's case. And so we were like, yeah, we, I mean, we were going to do it. Well, then, you know, as we've talked about before, we started having problems with a family member who felt like she was losing control of her, the narrative around her sister's case. And I don't understand this dynamic, but it got so toxic that at one point, you know, CrimeCon called me one morning and said, we can't deal with this anymore. This is too much. And I said, I totally agree. I totally understand. Well, part of what we learned when we were studying this case was that, you know, these traditional, you know, forms of communication, you know, TV, radio and book, sometimes they apply more to an older generation. You know, newer generation is more YouTube, podcast, stuff like that. Yeah. And so we had planned on doing some podcasting on this case, but we weren't reaching in that. Like we wanted to create a network of people because we felt like whoever killed Debbie had had told people somewhere along the line in those 47 years. And so we wanted to reach those people. And so finally, when the crime con thing was, you know, kind of went down in flames, we, we, we had already written a lot about it already. We decided, OK, this generation that we're, we're trying to target these, you know, they're in their 60s. They're readers. They're not podcast listeners. So we wrote the book because we wanted to reach more of that demographic, if that makes sense. And surprise, and that we've had a lot of a lot of compliments from people following the case. We're like, thank you very much for doing that. It's much easier for me to read than listen to a podcast. Which again, I don't understand, but yeah, that's that's what they want. (laughs) So also, like you know, just like to to let people know. Um, that like we create, we created like a pretty vast network in the Rebecca Gould murder case. We had, you know, we've had, um, social workers and law enforcement and just a whole, um, a galaxy of different, of different professionals who were in that network. And they always would come up with like really interesting ideas or look at it from a different perspective. And I don't think that people under, you know, the average person can understand the value of creating a vast network like that, you know, it's like if I'm sitting around here, you know, there was a there was a day in time when nobody in the world was thinking about Rebecca's murder except for maybe me and her family members. And then all of a sudden I turned around and there was thousands of people thinking about it. And that helped create the pressure. And even the murderer in that case said over and over in his confession, he goes, man, this Facebook page, they were just constantly saying things and doing things and just kept coming at us. And, uh, and then these podcasts would come out and George Jerry kept writing about in these books and it was just stressing me out. And he said it over and over and over again. So um, I'm hoping that people will get out of it that, you know, we might be able to solve some of these cases if we try some, you know, non-traditional means. Yeah. Well, so uh, now how do people get a hold of you? Like, so let's give out all your information, street address, phone number, everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for, for, the, for the ones that want to make sure they get George, uh, you know, yeah. So what's your what's your ideal means? Ideal means for me would probably be Facebook or Instagram um, or LinkedIn. Those are kind of the three that I mainly my main social media platforms I'm on. 
Um, you can join our D Unsolved uh, Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson Facebook page. That would be a, a great start. Um, you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, if you if you if you friend me on one of those platforms, if you send me a message, I I I try to respond to every message I get, but some fall through the cracks. It would be somebody who messaged me three months ago, and I look, you know, I'm scrolling through there, and I'm like, oh crap, I missed somebody. Because um, sometimes I do get loaded down, like when, you know, when they made an arrest in Rebecca's case. I think at one point I had over 200 messages on unread that had come within an hour, um, and I just couldn't keep up with them. But, um, but that's probably the best way. I mean, if you Google my name, I'm pretty easy to find, and. Uh, I try to be accessible, you know, because I know that people are genuinely curious about this stuff. And um, I know um, I know how much I appreciate it when I try to get a hold of somebody that I really want to talk to and they uh, take time for me. Like uh, Miss Barbara Eden. I know you remember her, Alan, from back in the um, I Dream of Jeannie days. I yeah. interviewed her about yeah. a month ago for a magazine. And you have a website then or are you not running one? I've got a website and we're re it's being quite literally this week. It's being completely redone. I'm having some major changes done to it. So it's down at this moment, but it'll be back up real soon. Okay. Great. Well, fantastic. We appreciate you being on the show and you know, the book silent silhouette. We'll have that up on the website as well. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, your Tinder or Grinder account, whatever we could find. And uh, thank you. So, Mr. George Jared, we appreciate you. Hey, listen, uh, if you find my Tinder or Grinder account, would you let me know where it's at? Because I have no clue. Yeah, well, you know, I'll create one if I can't find one. <laughs> hey, Alan, that's what I've told uh, some, uh, I was dealing with a county judge one time, and um, I told him, I said, you either – Give me a quote or I'm going to make one up. So you have an option here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when in doubt, we find it. Uh, there's something else I would say, but of course, can't on air. But anyway. Well, thank you, George. It's always good. You're up there with the uh, great uh, writers and true crime and journalists. I put you up there with Matt Birkbeck. You know, so there's certain people that just... Uh, just get in there. They'll drive right into the deliverance state and they'll wait and just to find the answer. You see, and I, I won't, you know, I mean, I'd go into the deliverance state, but I'm not going to go there for answers. No, no. Anyway, thank you, George. It's great. Alan, David, thank you so much. Thanks, George. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.